This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom DiOria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom DiOria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk. It's the first Sunday of January. It's January 5, 2014. Happy New Year out there to everybody. Hope you had a happy and safe uh, New Year celebration. We're on at 5 p.m. in the New York listing area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. And today we're live from our New York offices, digging out still from the snow on Friday. Um, and we're going to be discussing what is the deep web and why is Washington scared? Hmm, they're scared about a lot of things these days. We'll see why they're scared about the deep web. And our guest is uh, Thomas Quinlan. I'm Tom DiOria. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you the review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with the increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this to an industry-wide report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software or equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us in many aspects of business and industry, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com, and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else that we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369, and if you're outside the 602 listing area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can uh, use that email address I just gave you, techtalk at imi-us.com. We monitor that throughout the show, and if we don't get your question on today, we'll definitely get it on um, either next week or send you a response during the week. We're also being simulcast on the web, so if you can't get to your radio but you want to listen to us live, go to KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com, and you can hear us live. Or if you want to hear this show again or any of our previous shows, you can go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. All the shows are archived. You can download them, send them to your friends, listen to them as many times as you want. It's free, so please take advantage of that, and please call in any time during the show, and we'll get you on as quickly as possible. First segment of Week in Review is your increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world, and it's compiled by Dave Brandon, Dan DiOria, and Jose Batistas. So, um, the new mayor uh, just got sworn in on the 1st, and uh, we're anticipating um, changes in the IT environment in the city. Uh, he's already selected a number of commissioners, including uh, Commissioner Bratton for police. So we're going to keep an eye on that and um, let you know how that's going and what the plans are for technology in the city. And uh, our lead article as New York City residents have a new tool to track 911 response times, a website that shows weekly averages for how long it took to get to fires, medical emergencies, and other type of calls. Previously, the city government could compute response times only for individual agencies, not categories of calls. 
and the clock started when the agency received the call from 911 operator, not when the caller first reached 911. That changed with updates to the city's 911 system earlier this year. New York City's 911 system handles more than 11 million calls a year. Changes to the system in recent years have spurred contention between the city, unions representing firefighters, paramedics, and dispatches. You can find the site at nyc.gov and search for 911 performance reporting. Verizon CEO says New York wireless problems are nearly fixed. Uh, they've been fortifying their wireless network in New York and addressing uh, the coverage problems. That's according to CEO Lowell McAdam. Uh, his comments come nearly a month after Chief Financial Officer Fran Shamo acknowledged that Verizon was facing wireless network pressure in big cities. McAdam, however, specified, specifically referred to the issues in New York, which he called its own beast of market. The, com- the company identified 49 cell sites in the New York area that have been overwhelmed with traffic. So far, Verizon has addressed 42 of those problematic sites and began deploying additional spectrum which will ease the capacity constraint and likely yield higher speeds. The issues haven't really affected Verizon's ability to grow and keep its customers. Uh, I guess that's probably due to uh, their advertising. And McAdams said it hasn't been affected by increased competition on the low end. But if people get aggravated enough when it's time to renew, they could renew with somebody else. The Internet opens up a whole world of people to virtually meet, chat to, and learn from, the Daily Mail tells us. Yet one professor claims this increase in online conversations could be damaging. Professor Sherry Turkle from MIT, uh, it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, believes online relationships make it possible for people to ignore anyone or anything they think is boring and give more structure and considered answers. She warns when people then talk to each other in real life, they could potentially struggle with the change in pace and structure and actually forget how to have face-to-face conversations. And this could become even more prevalent as more children are using the Internet and mobile devices from a younger age. Turkle added that by avoiding certain parts of human conversation, we could forget what makes our conversations human. You think? During her research, Turkle studied how people interact with each other. She told NPR many of her interviewees said they preferred talking on text because they can compose their remarks. I don't think so. Uh, They continued that human interaction is messy because it involves people speaking before properly forming thoughts. Okay, how many of you gotten a text that wasn't thought out? Our research concluded that as people get used to conversations without any boring bits, they won't be able to talk the same way, and that prevalence of online conversations forcing some of us to learn how to have face-to-face conversations again. We've reached out to uh, Dr. Turkle to see uh, if we can have her come on the show and explain this in more depth. Uh, like to get uh, some more insight into how she went above about that research. Okay, the White House proposed a broad surveillance review board report recommending changes to the National Security Agency, including a proposal that NASA's collection of American telephone records be stored by telephone companies or another third party, not the agency. That being said, uh, last week a judge said it was okay for them to collect the information. The White House said the report includes 46 recommendations for modifying the nation's vast surveillance network after the scope of the government spying 
was revealed earlier this year. President Barack Obama is under no obligation to accept the review board's requirements and is conducting his own internal review. According to the former administrative official, the task force report recommends raising the bar on how much the U.S. data the NSA can acquire and how long it can be kept. Okay. Let's see what echoes. Okay, let's see. We've got a bunch of things to tell you and not much time. Uh, Wall Street Journal tells us that Amazon said it is collaborating with several Chinese companies for its first cloud service based in the world's largest country, a bid to draw new customers to its fast-expanding Amazon Web Services. The Seattle-based online retailer said China Net Center and Synet are among a group of local enterprises that will provide data centers, network facilities, and other hardware infrastructure, a necessity under China's rule for foreign companies operating uh, in China. Amazon said it also had uh, signed agreements with government authorities in Beijing and Ningua. Amazon's AWS unit is taking on growth importance as more companies try to reduce the expense of operating their own data centers in favor of renting computing power. Some analysts estimate AWS will uh, take in around $3 billion in revenue this year. Amazon has said it could eventually overtake its traditional retail business in size, though the company doesn't disclose the unit's sales. Amazon said it already has thousands of Chinese cloud customers served throughout the data centers elsewhere in Asia and other regions, but had been urged to offer a service operated in China. A local group can help speed and provide additional uh, protection for customers in the event of an outage elsewhere. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to get to our guest. We're going to tell you why Washington is scared of the deep web and tell you what the deep web is all about. I'm Tom Dioria. Happy New Year again. It's Sunday, January 5th, 2014. This is IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dioria. It's the 5th of January, 2014. Happy New Year again. Uh, and as I promised you before the break, we're going to talk to you about what is the deep web and why is Washington scared of this specific thing. We're not going to go into everything else that Washington may or may not be scared of. Our guest is Thomas J. Quinlan, who has 13 years professional experience with technology, with extensive experience in network and application security, electronic discovery, and digital forensics. Uh, Thomas has held positions at several technology companies in charge of network and application security, some of the Internet's largest online applications, as well as leadership of large-scale e-discovery projects and digital forensic investigations. He is certified in uh, computer security, and if you're a regular listener, you know what a CISSP is, computer forensics, you may not know this, ENCE, as well as malware reverse engineering, CREM, uh, Thomas also serves as a member of the editorial advisory panel for Linux Journal. Thomas, thanks a lot for taking the time to be with us. We're looking forward to this show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so uh, let's start at the beginning um, and tell our listeners what Deep Web is all about. Sure. The Deep Web could technically be anything that's not immediately accessible uh, without specialized knowledge um, that's on the Internet. So 
typically it would be things like torrents or uh, things that are available through Tor, which most people don't generally see without specialized knowledge or software. Okay, so it's more like a uh, hidden web? Yes, that's a very good description. Um, so there's a hidden web out there. Um, let's get some other ground-setting uh, definitions in. Tell our listeners what a VPN is, virtual private network. Sure. Now, relate that back to the deep web, and uh, then I have one more question for you. Okay. Well, there's two ways that you can connect to a deep or hidden web. The first is typically a VPN or a virtual private network. A virtual private network essentially allows you to connect to virtual resources that are available on one end of a network by routing your traffic through the regular network or through the regular internet that's encrypted. Most people are familiar with this already through their work. They will connect to work resources from their home, for instance, or from a remote location. The work traffic is sent over the regular internet, but it's encrypted. And that allows them access to things that would be ordinarily hidden from them where they are. So their virtual endpoint becomes their office. It's possible to use VPNs that aren't just for work. There are several commercial VPN providers, and what they do is they allow you to have a virtual endpoint that's typically in a different country. So if you want to access something in the United States and you are outside of the U.S., then you would contract with one of these VPN providers, and then that allows you to access resources in the U.S. as if you were sitting there. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Um and what's Tor, T-O-R? Tor is the Onion Router. It's essentially a series of virtual tunnels, and what they do is they allow you to connect from a point close to you, have the traffic, including the addressing, encrypted, have it sent over the Tor network to an endpoint, and that endpoint will then provide you with access to the resources that you're looking for. The difference between Tor and VPN is that Tor encrypts the addressing information, whereas VPN does not. So the best analogy would be that VPN is essentially like a postcard with the message obfuscated, whereas, um, sorry, did I say that backwards? A VPN is like the postcard, whereas Tor Essentially, you're putting a message in an envelope, and you're also scrambling the address and handing it to someone who knows how to read the scrambled address and gets it through to the endpoint. So is is uh, Tor secure from anyone, or is it just more difficult to figure out who it is? Uh, it is possible to figure out statistically certain types of traffic on tour, but it's very difficult. And you have to have access to a number of the end nodes that are providing access to the eventual destinations. Now, the way the tour works is that some people will set up exit nodes, the step right before the endpoint, and they will actively scan the traffic. However, um, while it's been done academically, it's generally not something that's done for practical purposes. Most people set up exit nodes 
so that they can actually provide the Tor network with more robustness uh, and with more security. So how do uh, VPNs in Tor enable one to use the deep web? VPNs, as I mentioned, will provide you with a virtual endpoint. So there may be something uh, most people are familiar with, such services like uh, Hulu or Pandora, all of which are only available in the U.S. So in that respect, they're not really on the deep web, but for those people that are outside the U.S. or the country that they're interested in accessing services, the VPN allows them to sort of get around the region blocking and still access those services. Tor provides secure encrypted communication from one end of the communication channel to the other. And it also provides a series of hidden services as well. And those are only available to people on the Tor network. Now, um, you said that there's uh, uh, commercial VPNs available there. How do you get access to a, a Tor network? Are they, are they commercially available as well? Uh, actually, the Tor network is based on software that is completely free. It's available at torproject.org. And all you have to do is visit their page, download the appropriate software for your operating system, and it's available for Mac, Windows, and Linux. And once you have installed the software, the next step is to follow the directions. It's important to follow the directions they provide so that the security is actually in place once you have that connection and you use the modified version of Firefox that they provide, you'll then be on the Tor network. Once you do that, your communications are encrypted from end to end. So is the addressing, and you have access to both the regular network, although generally you wouldn't want to access the regular network that way, but you also have access to things on the Tor network, such as sites that end in a .onion address, which are only available on Tor. What do I get when I once uh, now I've got these services and I want to go to the deep web? What what can I get there? Um, as with many technologies, there are both good and bad things. Many people are familiar with Tor in the general mainstream media through things like the Silk Road, which was an online marketplace. It was an online marketplace that sold a number of things, but it was primarily known for selling drugs. There are also a number of sites that you can access, and Tor also provides anonymity for those people who may be seeking to go around censorship. So, for instance, if you're in an area where the government is essentially scanning all Internet traffic, if you use Tor, you can communicate with people in your own country, but also people outside your country without the government seeing what it is that you're talking about. So this provides freedom of speech in that sense, as well as, say, access to illegal drugs. So as with any technology, Tor can provide you with both the bad and the good, the idea being that hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. Okay, and we have to take a break now, but uh, one of the questions I want to ask you when we come back is if I'm on a, on a Tor network, uh, I assume I can communicate with people that aren't but does that defeat the purpose? But hold that thought. I'm talking to uh, Thomas Quinlan about the deep web. This is Tom Diori on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 5th of January, 2004.
14. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dewey. It's the 5th of January, 2014. And we're talking to Thomas Quinlan about the deep web, and soon we're going to get into why Washington is scared about it. But before the break, um, we're talking about the secureness of the tour, being on tour. And um, I guess the question is, um, you explain that uh, if we're all on it, then our our conversations are basically uh, secure, and uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I but uh, I think you said that uh, nobody can tap into what we're talking about or what we're doing or what we're accessing. Um, do I have to talk to another tour person, or can I talk to somebody that's not on it? Uh, you can talk to anybody. Um, you can use the regular internet, and you can get all of the services that you would regularly get from the non-deep web using Tor. The idea, though, typically is that if you want to stay secure, you're going to want to only talk to people on Tor in that sense. Uh, you can also actually do things like encrypt an email, connect to Tor, send the encrypted email, and have the encrypted email run on the other side, that way you're still talking to someone that's not necessarily on the deep web, but you have that extra added layer of security. You can actually, oops, you can do anything on the deep web that you can do on the regular web, but the idea is that you want to separate the activities on the deep web so that you're staying secure. Okay, so tell us why um, Washington and... Uh I guess you mentioned some of the other governments are scared of the deep web. Typically, governments and certain other organizations are scared of the deep web primarily because, first, they don't understand it. They don't know how it is that these things are operated, and that's as much a function of them typically being from a generation that didn't grow up with computers, uh, whereas my generation and obviously the generation after me have. The other reason is that they aren't readily able to access the contents of the deep web to figure out what is going on. And as I mentioned earlier, it does provide people who they might consider dissidents free speech and the ability to communicate with other people outside of the area that they control. And so their inability to see these communications and or stop them makes them scared because without the ability to control the layer of free speech that they would want to control, they may have uh, uprisings. And it was a very popular tool to use during the Arab Spring when governments actually went so far as to shut off the internet in the particular country because they were unable to stop the flow of information and to control it the way they wanted. Now, when they did that, they all they stopped everything, including the secure... The web, I mean, they uh, deep stopped web. a number of things. Uh, they were unable to stop things like mobile phones, so people were still able to use services such as Twitter. And while it was difficult to connect securely 
using just mobile phones, very quickly technology and services sprang up to meet the needs of those people to communicate securely. And this is something that also makes governments and certain other organizations scared because it's very difficult to shut down particular services. So for instance, the Pirate Bay, which provides torrents to music and movies and things like that, has been shut down on any number of occasions, but each time it comes back. And typically, they will then adjust the configuration of a particular site or service so that whatever caused them to be down in the first place no longer applies when they come back. Now, do you feel that the NSA is ignoring this or just hasn't got the capability to break into it yet? Um, they're probably not ignoring it. They are aware of the TOR project. The TOR project actually was something that the United States government started. The NSA probably has the capability to set up exit nodes and probably does to a certain extent, but I don't know that they would be analyzing it unless they saw some kind of relevant use. By relevant use, I mean someone that they are after actually using TOR. The thing with TOR is that it makes it very difficult for governments to determine which traffic is coming from where and where it's going. So although the NSA tends to find ways around the various mandates they have not to spy on particular types of traffic, they can then find ways around it. So if someone's coming in from the Outside of the U.S., they have a better shot, but realistically, I think they're probably running their own exit nodes for the purposes of trying to figure things out. Now, do you feel that it's just governments that are scared of the deep web, or is it, I guess, other organizations as well? No, it's probably other organizations as well. The reason that I mentioned the Pirate Bay is typically organizations such as the Motion Picture Association of America or the Recording Industry Association of America or their corresponding um, bodies in other countries, they are not happy with the deep web. Um, things like the Pirate Bay allow people to trade movies and music, and that's not something that they like. They would prefer, obviously, that everybody bought a copy of everything each time. They go to great lengths to make sure that things are region locked to prevent a person, say, in Europe from using a disk purchased in the United States. And the deep web allows people to circumvent their artificial scarcity model. And so they perceive that as a loss of revenue. So that would keep them obviously on their toes as much as they'd like to recover that. So do they have any campaign to try to uh, either break into this or... Uh, negate its effectiveness, or are they just you know, sitting on the outside not happy with it? No, they have uh, a number of tools at their disposal. They have uh, obviously lobbying in the respective governments, so they make it so that they can change laws wherever possible. Additionally, they will use uh, police forces to sometimes intercept or raid various organizations. So the Pirate Bay has been raided on a number of occasions. They've had their servers taken. Again, this leads to downtime, but not for very long. And additionally, they can participate in the deep web as anyone else can. So 
One of the things that they have done is contract with organizations who will run essentially bogus torrents uh, on the Pirate Bay, for instance, or there's nothing that prevents them from running their own exit nodes or their own nodes on the Tor network too. Of course, that becomes very difficult on the Tor network due to the encryption, but with the Pirate Bay or torrenting, they can very easily set up fake torrents and see who connects to them. Now, uh, Thomas, just going back to, to our original discussion of this whole thing, this is, is this all based on, and you probably answered this already, but um, the reason why it's so effective is the, is the Tor servers are strictly for that use. So unless you somehow can physically get to the server, as you just said, they confiscate the servers. Um, you know, that's that's really the only effective way of getting to it? Yes. On the deep web, the services provided can be either from the regular Internet, such as torrenting or what have you. The other possibility is that there are services that are only available through Tor. Typically, these will be addresses for those services ending in .onion. These are endpoints that only exist inside that particular network and can only be accessed with that software. So if you try and access a .onion address without being connected to the deep web, then you won't be able to do so because the only way that address can be resolved is through a connection to Tor. Typically, regular resolution is done through what's known as DNS or domain name service. That does not exist in the same way on the Tor network. There is a basically a giant table of addresses and servers. Without being connected, you won't be able to read that table and so won't be able to access those services. So it's very difficult to find the corresponding server for a particular service on Tor. And I was reading today, actually, that the fragmentation of the current Internet due to the various spying scandals may make it so that only Tor becomes the network that people connect to. Because if governments have a significantly more difficult time accessing services and shutting them down, that may become people's preferred method because they will then be able to use the network as it was supposed to be used. Okay, so that opens a a bunch of other questions, but we're going to take a break. I'm Tom DiOrio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're speaking to Thomas Quinlan about the deep web and why are various organizations and governments uh, scared of it. Um, We're going to take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria. It's the 5th of January, 2014, and we're talking to Thomas Quinlan about the deep web. Um, Thomas, if our listeners want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? The best way is to find me through Twitter. My Twitter handle is Thomas underscore Quinlan, and I can also be found on LinkedIn. Okay, great. Um so it is difficult um, 
Well, I guess I guess I have a whole bunch of questions about how one gets access now, so we can tell our listeners if they want to use the deep web how to do it. But my first question is, since it is so secure, if I'm a government, why don't I just get onto it and start mucking around? Well, there's nothing that prevents governments from doing that, and I'm sure that many of them do. The United States government, as I said, was the person, the organization that started the Tor project, so they know how it works, and there is nothing that prevents them from setting up servers on the deep web themselves at all. So they, so they could set up servers pretending that they're legitimate or illegitimate servers, and then uh, uh, if people get access to them, um, can they garner any more information than... Uh, um, they would if they were on the web, regular web, or is the stuff secure even though it's going through a server? The way they, the Tor network works is that if a person creates a service on the Tor network, they will see the traffic from the preceding node. So essentially you have a number of steps between you and the end service, and the final point will see the information from the previous point. Now, there are ways to correlate traffic if you possess the information from enough nodes and certainly within the realm of government possibility to operate many nodes on this particular network. But it's designed so that it only provides information to the next step. And then the only information you receive is the information from the previous step. So it's significantly more secure, and it is possible to run statistical traffic analysis to get better idea of what happens, but it's much more cost-intensive, much more resource-intensive. The other thing is that, of course, the government can set up a service with a dot .onion address, and they can have people sign into that service, and they can accumulate information that way. But again, it's time and resource-intensive, and so... It's much more difficult to do. Now, uh, if I'm a regular person and not very technical, how do I get on to it? The easiest way is to go to the Tor Project. It's torproject.org. And when you connect to their website, they have a download button. If you click the download button, it then gives you access to software for your particular operating system. You simply click download install the software, read the instructions, and then connect. Once you've connected, it will be a regular web browser, just like you're used to. It's a specially modified version of Firefox. Once you've gotten onto that particular deep web, there is then a search engine. It's not Google, although you can choose to use Google, but many people do not. Once you've got that search engine, you can use it just like you're used to with anything else. Okay, and then that'll take me to all these Onion sites? If you how do I know for, what's out there? I, how do I know what's out there once I'm on? There is a just, directory of Onion sites, and you can go through the directory and start that way. If you do a search in the search engine, which is typically called DuckDuckGo, then it will also provide you listings of various uh, sites that you can access. And uh, those are only sites on this network. It's not... It's not doing a search of the whole web that we're used to. Actually, it will do a search of everything, so you can get uh, the regular Internet as well. 
Are, am I secure if I'm going out to those websites as well, or is it only the .onion sites? It's slightly less secure to go to the regular Internet, but since the site, or sorry, since the network is designed to provide only information from one step to the next, you can access the regular Internet, but you just have to be more cautious when doing so. And I just got a note here from, uh, who's this from? Oh, from Joe. Wanted to know whether or not it takes up a lot of uh, memory on my on his machine, a lot of disk space to put this on. Actually, no. Um, the Tor software takes slightly more disk space than a regular installation of Firefox. The memory footprint, while it's running, is fairly small. The only thing that most people will notice is that the... Web pages ref refresh more slowly when you're connected to Tor because it is taking the extra steps of making sure that your connection from one point to the next is encrypted at all stages. So when you're used to connecting to the regular internet and pages refresh very, very quickly, you won't have that same. It won't be terribly, terribly slow, but it won't be as fast as you're used to either. Now, um, Another question that I just got handed, who gave me that? That's from Mickey. Wants to know how do you pay for things? If you're in an encrypted world, do you have encrypted money? Yes, actually. Uh, there are multiple ways you can pay for things on the deep web. First is with cash, uh, money orders, things like that. That has not gone out of fashion. And in fact, it's technically the only untraceable method of paying for things although it's not entirely untraceable, but realistically, you're significantly more anonymous if you use cash. That, of course, is very slow. The other way that you can do it is with uh, an encrypted currency or a cryptocurrency, I should say, called Bitcoin or one of the other altcoins like Litecoin. And you can purchase Bitcoins, which, of course, is not anonymous, or you can create Bitcoins through a process called mining, which is significantly more anonymous. And once you have Bitcoins, you can then use those to pay for things on the deep web. So where does one learn about mining Bitcoins? Just go to Bitcoin.com? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I think it's Bitcoin.it, but essentially there are a number of resources online that will allow you to learn about Bitcoins and Litecoins and the other various cryptocurrencies. Uh, the two that I've mentioned are the more popular, they're considered the gold and silver of online cryptocurrencies. But Bitcoin at this point in terms of mining is somewhat out of the reach of people in that it used to be easy to do with basic home computers. Now it requires specialized hardware. But Litecoin can typically be mined or created using regular graphics cards in home computers, and that's why it's gaining in popularity. Great. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, this is all very interesting, and uh, hopefully our listeners will get in touch with you if they want to follow up. Um, My pleasure. And Happy New Year to you. Uh, next week, Thank we're going you, to be live from our, new, from our New York offices. Uh, we're going to have a week in review, and Phoebe Carson is going to be discussing Generation C. Uh, we're going to uh, CES in Las Vegas uh, next week, so we'll have a show the week after that on that. I want to thank Terry Giro, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Dan DiOri, and Jose Batista for the Week in Review. Taylor Redden's our producer. Matt Campagny's our executive producer. And without Robert, I'm back in the KFNX 
AM1100 Production Department. You wouldn't have heard a word we said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 5 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM1100. Remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Happy New Year, have a great week and a great year, and thanks for listening.